Klein, and welcome to the Trauma and Mental Health Report podcast series, where we aim to share stories, knowledge, and topics related to trauma and mental health with the community. My name is Michelle Kim, and I'd like to welcome our very special guest for today's episode, discussing the therapeutic potential of psilocybin for addiction treatment. So today we have Dr. Albert Garcia Romeo here with us from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine at the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research. He's currently working in the Behavioral Pharmacology Research Unit at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. He is also a guest researcher at the National Institute on Drug Abuse, Intramural Neuroimaging. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Garcia Romeo. Thank you. Yeah, and you can call me Al, please. I think it's a little bit smoother that way. So, <laughs> Okay, thank you. I appreciate that, Al. Mm-hmm. Well, it's great to have you here with us today, especially during such exciting times in psychedelic research, um, you know, because there has been a lot of buzz around psychedelics lately. And it seems like, you know, most people, okay, sure, maybe they've heard about psychedelics and psilocybin in particular uh, for the treatment of depression or PTSD, maybe even eating disorders for, you know, people who are in the know. Um, but not everybody knows about the addiction side. Um, so what can you tell us about some of the top findings that you're seeing with psilocybin and the treatment of different types of addictions? What are you seeing there? Yeah, well, I think, you know, this is really an outgrowth of a lot of earlier research. And you're right, there's been a substantial body of research with psilocybin and treating uh, depression specifically. Uh, And we've seen uh, several big papers published over the last few years uh, showing antidepressant effects of psilocybin. And those came on the heels of uh, earlier research with cancer patients with anxiety and depressed mood and showing really good effects there. Um, But even before that, uh, during the 1950s, 1960s, um, some of the early psychedelic research really focused squarely on using uh, LSD specifically for treating addictions. Um, One of the main ones that was looked at at that time was uh, for alcohol use disorder or alcoholism as they called it then. Um, And so that had shown some good promise at the time uh, and there was some, also some early research using LSD-assisted treatment for opioid dependence as well, um, with great results. And you know that work obviously kind of uh, fell by the wayside after the war on drugs started in the 1970s. You really saw a lot of stigmatization and basically the outlawing of all of the psychedelics, which made it difficult to do research with them. And uh, professionally, it was not something that people wanted to necessarily be associated with at that time. Um, But fast forward to 2000 or so, and uh, around that time, you start to see a little bit of a change in attitudes and specifically uh, researchers at institutions like Johns Hopkins, but other schools like NYU or University of New Mexico, UCLA, um, started doing research clinically using psilocybin uh, in treatment of various types of conditions. Uh, One of the main areas, again, was really to go back and follow up on that earlier era of research in treating addictions. And so um, there's been really only a couple of big uh, studies that have been done in the contemporary era using psilocybin for treatment of addiction. Um, Two of them uh, have not been published yet. Uh, I happen to know what the results are because I've been working on one of them very closely. And then the other one is being done by my friend, Dr. Peter Hendricks down at University of Alabama at Birmingham. And so I happen to know what, what he's working on as well, but um, I, I guess I'll start with what's published, which is um, Dr. Michael Bogenschutz, who's now at NYU, uh, was previously at University of New Mexico. Uh, and really what, what they did was they started by publishing a small study 
I believe it was in 10 individuals with alcohol dependence. Uh, I may have the number wrong there, but it was a small number. It was an open label pilot study. So that meant there was not a control group and that there was also um, no blinding or anything like that. It's really just to see if this type of treatment would be feasible and if it would do anything positive for the patients. And what they did was they gave one to two high doses of psilocybin with motivational enhancement therapy to these people who wanted to either reduce or stop their drinking, which was problematic for them. Uh, and they found that after that type of treatment, uh, they had a substantial reduction in heavy drinking and just drinking in general uh, that lasted up to nine months after the treatment. And so that's pretty uh, indicative that there's a, a signal there that's worth following up further. Um, and so this year, uh, Dr. Bogensheets and colleagues published their follow-up study, which was an, a larger randomized controls trial. Uh, it was a double-blind placebo-controlled study, so people either receive uh, two doses of psilocybin or two doses of an active placebo, niacin in this case. Um, also, they're both receiving the same wraparound care, which was motivational enhancement therapy to help them uh, reduce their alcohol use. And what they found in that study that was just published uh, was that there was uh, significantly greater reductions in drinking and heavy drinking in the group that received the psilocybin as compared to the placebo group. Um, so that really suggests that um, for alcohol dependence specifically, uh, when you can incorporate a couple of high doses of psilocybin within the talk therapy regimen, that's going to make it more effective than if you just did the talk therapy alone. I should say the talk therapy alone was pretty effective, and that was kind of state-of-the-art. You know, it was, it was very, very good care, obviously, that they're providing in the study. Um, but when you add that extra layer of the psilocybin, then you get better outcomes. And so that's, I think, um, probably the largest study that's been published using psilocybin for addiction treatment, uh, you know, during the current period of, of research. And were the results for psilocybin any more compelling than previous results that were observed for LSD? Um, you know, it's kind of hard to hard to compare. And one of the yeah. big reasons is um, when you're looking at the way that they were doing things back in the old days, in the 60s and 70s, you know, the way that they were measuring things and reporting their data are quite different. And so the standards are obviously much um, more rigorous nowadays. You know, there are certain things that have been put in place for clinical trials and you know, measurements of um, recent alcohol use. Oftentimes in a lot of the early research, for instance, you know, you'd have a doctor or psychiatrist who is doing the research, um, kind of do an interview and evaluate you. And they would, based on what you told them, give you sort of a rating of, oh, this person is very much improved, 10, right. you know, on a scale from one to 10. And then this person is not improved at all, or, you know, they've actually gotten worse. So they're one. And so something like that is very hard to, uh, you know, compared to what we're getting nowadays, we're getting kind of granular timeline follow-back data or asking people how much alcohol they were drinking, you know, over the last month and on a daily basis and that kind of thing. No, fair enough. It, the 70s were very different in that way, for sure. Um, okay, well, just out of curiosity, you mentioned, because you also mentioned opioid um, use as well. Is the idea that, like, does this work as a companion? Is the idea that this could potentially be a companion to like a methadone treatment? Or is this potentially an alternative to? Well, that's a good question. I don't think we have a good answer to that right now. Um, right now, the state of the art for treating uh, opioid dependence is definitely um, 
opioid uh, agonist therapies or basically um, buprenorphine, methadone, those types of medications that tend to help people uh, stay off of the illicit uh, opioids. Uh, so there are some studies that are being designed right now specifically to look at interactions between psilocybin and some of those medications like buprenorphine. Um, and there are also studies being designed and I think um, hopefully will be conducted here before too long where um, people will be getting uh, psilocybin as part of uh, integration with tr uh, a medication assisted treatment. So they will be getting on some sort of medicine um, after I think uh, they receive the psilocybin and see if that helps them to sort of stay on their medication and to remain abstinent from illicit opioids. No, fair enough. I mean, it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, yeah, the early research, there was a, I'm sorry to cut you off, but no, no. There, there is a great study that happened, you know, this was much earlier, but published in 1973 here in Baltimore, where men received either a single high dose LSD treatment, or they were just kind of released into the community. These are all incarcerated men who had a history of heroin use. And what they found was that the men who got the single high dose LSD treatment um, were uh, coming back and giving negative urine samples, you know, drug negative urine samples, all the way out to the 12 months uh, after their release at a much higher rate than the ones who were just released without the LSD treatment. Uh, and that was not where they were trying to induct them into any sort of medication assisted therapies. I was really just, you know, letting them go and trying to have them remain abstinent, which, you know, for the, the vast majority, they were not able to do that. But um, the ones who got that LSD treatment had higher success rates than the ones who didn't. So that's also pretty compelling kind of looking back at the earlier evidence. Right, right. So it, from your perspective, like you've, you know, I, we've seen a little bit, um, you've talked a little bit about the alcohol and opioid uh, potential with psilocybin in terms of treating the addiction. Um, we've also seen studies about the nicotine as well. Um, and I believe there was, you know, there was that online study that spoke to, you know, the potential of it being able to help cannabis dependence or even stimulant use disorder. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, this is an area, you know, I've been interested in for a long time. And uh, a lot of that too was kind of fostered by my mentor, Dr. Matt Johnson, who uh, he started a small early pilot study of uh, cigarette smokers who wanted to quit. Uh, and using psilocybin uh, with talk therapy to try to help them do that. And just as a little bit of background, I know we talk a lot about the opioid epidemic right now, which is a huge problem and it's gotten worse even if you can believe that. Um, so it's, it's obviously a, uh, something that we really need to be paying attention to. Um, but I don't know, you know how aware people are of the fact that tobacco, nicotine, you know, kills uh, more people than opioids, more people than alcohol, more people than cocaine, more people than all of those drugs put together every year consistently for decades. Uh, we've had just this extremely high uh, mortality rate that's related to cigarette smoking specifically um, for decades. And so we're talking on the order of about uh, 500,000 people in the U.S. per year who die from smoking related illness. And it's closer to in the millions for people um, I think it's about 5 million people around the world who die each year with smoking related illness. So that's, um, again, more than all the other drugs combined, illicit and prescription and, you know, alcohol and you name it. So it's really a huge public health problem. And, you know, there are a few available treatments, but they're not that great. And when I say that, I mean, you know, usually the best you're going to get is if you take, you know, 10 people who want to quit smoking and you give them the best available treatments, 
maybe two or three will be successful in the long term. Um, and then the other seven or eight folks are usually going to relapse after a period of time, usually within the first six months. Um, so, you know, that's where we're at with smoking. And that's also something that was not really heavily focused on during the earlier period of uh, psychedelic research, partly because the U.S. Surgeon General didn't even come out and say, hey, smoking is bad for you until 1964, if you can believe that. I mean, there was some data to suggest that, but by and large, you know, society was very accepting of smoking as part of the cultural norms at the time. Um, so it took a while before it really became clear that that was such a big problem, I think. Um, but as a result, there wasn't really any good overlap with that early period of psychedelic research on addictions and trying to get people to quit smoking. Uh, so when Matt you know, decided to start this little study, um, you know, that was a new focus for this field because it's never, never been done before. Um, and that act actually happened to be my first job out of graduate school was, you know, helping him to wrap that study up. So they had enrolled a few people, um, but they wanted to enroll more and just, you know, get it finished so we can see what the results look like and go from there. And what we found was, you know, this was very similar to Dr. Michael Bogenschutz's earlier small pilot study in, in people with alcohol dependence. Um, we, got, we took 15 people, all cigarette smokers, uh, on average for, I think, about 20 years, if I can remember correctly. Um, and they all wanted to quit and had tried successfully, uh, unsuccessfully several times in the past, uh, you know, using medications, cold turkey, even things like hypnosis. None of them had really worked, obviously, because they showed up as still smoking. And then we gave them a course of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is very standard kind of talk therapy you do with people who are dealing with something like wanting to quit smoking. Um, and then interspersed in there, we put two or three high doses of psilocybin. Um, specifically, the first dose was meant to be the quit date. So this is when people were asked to kind of stop smoking. And we usually would plan for that at least a month in advance. So they had a good sense that, okay, this is coming and then prepare, prepare for it, get mentally you know ready. Um, and that small study was really remarkable because we found that 80% of those people quit uh, and 80% uh, of them were still abstinent six months later. And that's a really high number in the smoking literature. And I think it's still the highest that I've seen in terms of this type of research with, you know, biochemical verification and everything. I mean, it's not like they're just telling us, oh, yeah, I haven't smoked. And we're, you know, taking metabolite uh, samples from, you know, bodily fluids and, you know, we're testing their breath like with a type of uh, breathalyzer device. And, um, you know, sure enough, we found that 80% of them stopped smoking uh, after their psilocybin dosing and after the treatment. Um, and even, you know, on average, about two and a half years later, we still had a majority of those people coming back and testing negative uh, for nicotine and tobacco. So um, we know that there seems to be some durability there of the effects. Um, it, sh it shows some promise. But again, there's a lot of methodological problems with the study, mainly because it was so small. There's not a control group. Um, you know, there, you know, there's no blinding uh, in terms of the conditions. So people knew what they were getting. Uh, so we went back to the drawing board afterwards, and we were really lucky because we got uh, funding from uh, Hefter Research Institute to go ahead and do a new follow-up study. Uh, and then the National Institute on Drug Abuse, which is next door here, um, we're also very interested in what we found, and so they let us play with their MRI machine so we can come over there and scan people's brains before and after. 
Uh, And yeah, and so that's actually what I've been working on ever since we published the initial results is that, um, you know, we have now actually enrolled our last 82nd participant in this larger study. So 82 people, um, we randomized them uh, either to receive a single high dose of psilocybin with CBT, or they're getting um, eight to 10 weeks of nicotine patches daily with the same CBT. Uh, and then we follow them up three, six, and 12 months after their quit day. And we try to see you know, how have they progressed over the, that period. Um, so right now the study is enrolled the last person, but we're still waiting for them to come back around for their last six and 12 month follow-up. So we can't give any definitive numbers, um, but what I can say so far is that with the 60 or so people who have made it um, through to their 12 month follow-up, um, what we see is at the three, six, and 12-month follow-up, every single time point, um, there is a substantially higher number of people who have quit smoking the psilocybin group compared to the nicotine patch group. Uh, and that's pretty impressive because nicotine patches, of course, are a uh, FDA-approved treatment for smoking cessation. And you know everybody was getting the same talk therapy, um, but we're still getting kind of a supercharged numbers in the psilocybin group. And so again, that's that's really indicative that there's something important there that's happening, that the drug is acting as a catalyzing agent, um, that it's boosting the therapeutic signal, you know, of the talk therapy, or it's helping these people be successful at a higher rate. Uh, and so that's really exciting, you know, in terms of trying to find novel therapies. And we're following up on that now doing a double blind placebo control study with uh, my, my colleagues, Michael Bogenschutz and Matt Johnson and um, Peter Hendricks. And so we're doing this study that's in three different sites at, at NYU and University of Alabama, Birmingham, and at Johns Hopkins. And so we'll be able to recruit people in three different parts of the country. Um, everybody's going to get either high dose psilocybin or placebo with some talk therapy. And then we'll be able to, com- to compare the results at, and I think that's also going to be really exciting as well. Absolutely. I mean, those are pretty compelling differences. I mean, do you think is is it what is the reason why, you know, because it, it's interesting to see that, you know, psilocybin potentially, you know, really improving symptoms for, you know, different types of addictions, different types of symptoms, you know, what is the common thread here in terms of why it's having such compelling effects um, for such different profiles? You know, is it is it that it's just, you know, making, um, you know, clients or patients a little bit more suggestible to the therapy? It's kind of optimizing um, the therapeutic recommendations or, you know, the insights that they are given in that way. What do you think is happening there? You know, we don't really have a good answer so far. And, uh, you know, we've seen compelling results in people who are trying to reduce their alcohol use, people who want to quit smoking. I mentioned uh, Peter Hendricks, so they're working on people, uh, working with people who have cocaine dependence, so that's stimulant use disorder of sorts. And again, you know, the findings are not published yet, but from what they've seen, they're seeing very good results with their psilocybin group compared to um, compared to the comparator. So um, again, yeah, seeing it in different types of conditions, also seeing that for major depression and also for anxiety-related disorders. Uh, so what is happening? Um, you know, I can venture a guess, but I, you know, it has to be you know, somewhat speculative at this point because we don't really know 
um, what the mechanisms are. And there seem to be lots of different layers of, of mechanisms involved. Uh, and you mentioned, I think you first started with talking about suggestibility, which I think is a great point in terms of enhancing uh, people's ability to sort of engage in the therapeutic process with their um, therapist or facilitator. Um, there's also other types of psychological experiences that people have under the influence of the drug that seems to be associated with good outcomes, including uh, these sorts of very meaningful experiences. Sometimes there's ins insight that comes about during these experiences, um, and even experiences that people describe as uh, unitive or transcendent or spiritual. And then in those experiences, you know, we see that they help people sort of have a shift mentally that changes the way that they sort of think about themselves and their behavior. And as a result, it makes it a little easier for them to maybe put down some of the um, you know, bad behavioral habits if we're talking about drug, drug use or maybe some of the negative uh, thinking patterns if we're think, talking about something like anxiety or depression. Um, it makes it a little easier for them to separate themselves from that and to maybe engage with something a little bit more positive or healthy for them. Um, that's, so that's, you know, I think the psychological side of the coin, um, at least, you know, from what we know at the moment. Um, there's also a lot of really interesting uh, growing evidence uh, looking at the biological mechanisms of how these drugs work, how they work biologically and in the brain. Um, you know, at the very kind of low level of the um, neurons themselves, you know, animal research has shown recently that when you expose animals to just a one dose of psilocybin or one dose of a psychedelic like LSD or DMT, you're seeing uh, changes in the structure of the brain itself and those brain cells. And specifically, there's these new synapses and these new dendrites that are forming. So these are new branches and new connections between the brain cells and not just anywhere, because in some places that could actually be a bad thing. Um, but in the prefrontal cortex, for instance, um, you're seeing these new connections forming. And that, that would be considered a good thing because that's sort of the in the driver's seat part of the brain that's telling you, you know, hey, slow down here. We know this isn't good for you. Or, hey, we need to make a better decision here. So let's not, um, you know, behave in X manner. And so by having more of that potential cognitive control, it could possibly slow down or stop some of the problem activities, whatever those might be, potentially, you know, this is um, still very speculative, but having seen the, that these new synapses and these new branches are forming in these brain regions after exposure, even just one exposure to one of these drugs, it gives us a little bit of a hint that, you know, at that level, there may be changes that are happening that are facilitating the therapeutic changes we see out with our participants in these studies. Um, and then, you know, the other real uh, kind of big outgrowth of the recent research has been looking at um, brain network connectivity during and after uh, drug dosing with the, these psychedelics. And there's all these different parts of our brain that are constantly in communication to keep us, you know, standing up, walking around, talking and conscious of what's going on. Uh, but when we're under the influence of these psychedelics, the dynamics of those networks, the way that they're talking to the, those regions are talking to one another, um, becomes quite scrambled and very different than it normally would under, uh, when you're not under the influence. But what's more interesting than that is that the brain networks are still acting a little bit different after the drug is gone. So even after you metabolize it and it's gone from your system, 
brain networks a week later, a month later, this is something my colleague, Dr. Fred Barrett has published on, um, so they're still acting differently. And again, these are important regions of the brain, like the amygdala, like the anterior cingulate cortex, um, where there's uh, important information processing happening about ourselves, about our emotional uh, reaction to the environment. And so that seems to also give us a window into understanding why we might be seeing uh, so many different types of positive effects for people ranging from antidepressant effects to, um, you know, recovery from addictions. That makes sense. Now, is there a similar or a different part of the brain that is responsible for telling somebody that they're having a bad trip? Um, I don't know if we know for sure where that would be located, <laughs> um, but it's a great question. And I should also say I'm not a brain scientist. So when I'm talking yeah. about the brain, you know, I'm kind of giving you my understanding of it. But, you know, I would, I would refer to an actual neuroscientist to give you more accurate information on that front. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. But like maybe for those less familiar, you know, yeah. what can you, what can you tell us about, you know, what a bad trip is or isn't, mm -hmm. you know, what causes them and maybe clarify, you know, what we should and shouldn't be worried about when it comes to bad trips. Yeah. Well, so first of all, what we've found in the lab giving high dose psilocybin to volunteers over the years here is that when you give them the high, high end of the dose range, which is 20, 30 milligrams or above, um, you will get a, pretty reliable signal for some people are going to have an emotionally challenging experience that could be, you know, feelings of anxiety, fear, paranoia. Um, it could also include things like grief and sadness, crying. Um, you know, people can become very disoriented. Uh, and so when they're here with us, they're safe. You know, we're able to keep them in this room and, you know, talk, talk to them until they get through the experience. And so usually that's not a problem. Um, but when they're out in the real world, you know, there is a potential for dangerous behavior, especially if somebody's unsupervised. So if they start to lose touch with what's really going on and they might be, um, you know, very disoriented, or, you know, they can act in ways that are risky. Um, so I think that's the main uh, thing to be concerned about is that if people are taking high doses of psychedelics, you know, out in the real world and they don't have anybody watching over them, um, there is potential for them to do things that they normally wouldn't do, which is very congruent with lots of other types of drugs. I mean, if you think about somebody who drank a lot of alcohol, there's a possibility they might go out and get in an altercation with somebody, they get in a car accident, you know, they can do all sorts of things that if they were sober, they wouldn't do. And so, uh, you know, one of the interesting findings we found from a large uh, survey study that my colleague, Dr. Teresa Carbonero published 2016, uh, they took 2,000 people roughly who had had uh, psilocybin out in the real world, and they asked them to talk about their most difficult experience with psilocybin. So they're basically, you know, we call it the bad trip survey. And you had um, pretty uh, sizable numbers. And so, of course, you're talking, you know, 10, 11%, which is not a huge amount of people. But when you're talking about 2,000 people, 10% is 200 of those people um, who are talking about things like, behaving in ways that are risky or dangerous or sometimes acting in ways that were physically aggressive, um, feeling like they needed to go to the emergency room or seek out medical treatment or psychological treatment because they were having such a difficult time. Um, so a lot of those types of risks are taken away in the setting that we do our work because we always have medical doctors on site. We have rescue medications if we need to use them. Um, and we have trained facilitators that are sitting with people throughout their experiences. Um, but 
you know, to that point, if you look at our history of over 700 dosing administrations here at Johns Hopkins since 2000, I think I can count on one hand the number of times we've actually had to use one of these rescue medications. I think it's once or twice out of those dosing sessions where we had to give someone a small amount of a sedative medication to help them calm down because they were so frightened. Uh, and the reason is we spent a lot of time building a good working relationship with the person so that when they're in there with us, um, they know that they're safe. They know that they're with somebody that they trust. And then we're able to just kind of walk them through that experience if they do start to feel very frightened. And so, you know, there's, I guess, differential risk depending on where you're at using these types of substances. Um, but the psychological experience that can come along with a bad trip or one of these very scary experiences, um, you know, it can be very real in the moment. People can think that they're dying. People can think that, you know, they're, uh, that people that they love are, you know, in danger. They can have um, very vivid kind of uh, imaginings and even reliving of um, different difficult experiences from their past. And so when that's happening, it's important um, that there's hopefully somebody there that can kind of keep them tethered to reality in, in case that they do start to act in ways that are dangerous. Absolutely. Yeah, because, you know, there is this kind of emerging um, understanding about how, you know, environment could potentially be tied to a bad trip. And so having said that, um, you know, do you think that, you know, because virtual reality has this ability to influence a person's like environmental perceptions, do you think that this is something, you know, potentially that could be used to mitigate or even prevent a bad trip? Yeah, I think it's a great idea. Um, I've actually been doing research with virtual reality and psychedelics now for a few years, um, specifically where we're putting people in different virtual environments when they're under the influence to try to see how they respond to that. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a nice tool because when we're doing our sessions, we mainly have to keep people in this kind of confined room. It's like a therapy room. It's comfortable. There's art on the wall. So it's not a terrible place to be. But at the same time, um, it would be interesting to take people other places to specifically probe those types of questions that you alluded to, which is what are the environmental influences going to sort of, sh how are they going to shape the way that a person experiences the drug effects? So if you can take a person in VR and all of a sudden put them in outer space or underwater or on the top of a mountain, you know, pretty cheaply and easily um, when they're under the influence, then that gives you the ability to sort of um, you know, use that as a, as a tool. Um, and so we haven't really been using it specifically for uh, challenging experiences, but we've mainly just been studying how people respond to these various environments. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's, I think there's a lot more to be done with that still. Um, so we're kind of in the early stages of combining those two technologies. Well, super new. I mean, there's even that that um, that new interactive group VR experience, Isness D by David Glowacki, that's supposed to be reminiscent of a medium dose of LSD and psilocybin mushrooms. Have you have you read some of the literature on that? I'm curious to get your thoughts on this concept. Yeah, so I've talked to David Glowacki and their team, uh, and they have showed us Isness, and so we've gotten to go in there. Uh, actually, myself and some of my colleagues from Hopkins got to go in there and and check it out. Uh, and it was it was great. It was quite an experience. I thought it was really uh, fascinating to see what they built out and what you can do with that, specifically as a way of kind of uh, interacting with with people who are at a great distances. Because if I remember 
correctly that, you know, when we were doing it, there was a few of us here in Baltimore, but we're each in our own homes in our, you know, VR. Uh, and then there, we also had folks uh, overseas in different countries, people on the West Coast of the U.S. And so we're all able to kind of be in the same space um, while also, uh, you know, not being in the same space. So to be able to interact that way was quite neat. Um, but then also, um, you know, once you're in there, there are things that you can manipulate um, perceptually uh, in terms of sounds and visually what you're seeing that, uh, yeah, I, I, it's it's hard to describe if you're not in there, if you don't go in there and actually um, have the experience. But um, yeah, I thought it was, it was very interesting. And again, an area that really um, there's going to probably be a lot more interesting developments in the in the near future there, because I feel like it could be used for a lot of really interesting medical and mental health applications, including for things like addiction treatment, but also for, um, they use them, for instance, in uh, children with uh, burns. And so by putting them in VR, they can kind of distract them from the physical pain of their uh, you know, bodies and sort of, kind of put them in this other place where they're not so attending to you know, the, the level of pain that they're dealing with. And so, and, you know, again, these are very early uh, applications, but there's, I think there's a lot of cool stuff that we can do using VR, building new worlds in there um, and helping each other, you know, to interact in there in, in different ways. And then um, also kind of bringing that together with some of the work we're doing with psychedelics, uh, you know, I think is a fascinating horizon. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's super cool that you've actually had firsthand experience with this group VR format. I mean, not not a lot of people can say that they've tried Isness D. Yeah, well, we read about their work. And so and, you know, obviously, they'd read about what we're doing. And there's there's overlap there, because really, a lot of what that is, is looking at is um, altered states of consciousness, you know, how do you change the way that a person is feeling and, you know, feeling about themselves in the world. And, you know, using a drug is one tool to create that altered state but there are other ways and vr was you know one that they have had been experimenting with and building you know started building that platform um so i think yeah there's there's a lot more there to look at absolutely i mean there's there's so many open discussions about this like you know could it be used as a preparation tool to you know slowly transition someone onto you know getting comfortable with the idea of psychedelic therapy, you know, is this something that could potentially like, you know, the, you know, the therapist and the client could potentially do together. It's super interesting. So many fascinating ideas with this new concept. And I think it's super cool that you've been able to uh, play around with it. Well, Al, it's been a privilege to have you here with us today during such exciting times in psychedelic research. And that concludes today's episode of our Trauma and Mental Health Report podcast on the therapeutic potential of psilocybin for addiction treatment. Thank you for joining us. You can check out more podcasts on Spotify and find us online at trauma.blog.yorku.ca. You can also connect with us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and newsletter to see our latest content. Thank you and see you at our next episode. Mm -hmm.